Please stand as we read God's word. The passage today is Matthew 12, 38 through 50. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside, wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside, wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. Standpoint of skepticism about Jesus Christ, which is exactly what we see in this passage today. I hope that most of you have enough exposure uh, to the defense of Christianity that you can see how Bill Maher is spinning everything that he can. Sometimes simply saying it does not exist and then playing an interview of somebody who doesn't have all the historical evidence uh, at his fingertips or the citation of 93% of scientists in a particular academy where I've seen statistics where 50% of scientists have religious faith and believe in God. Uh, There's a spin that goes on throughout this movie. And uh, I think we have to recognize that. There is a movement today, even over the last decade or so, kind of a new atheism of the authors writing many books that are, again, used on campuses or read by people that spin all all the facts in in one direction. Uh, Another quote here is uh, the late Christopher Hitchens, uh, in one of the more famous books, says, We keep on being told that religion, whatever its imperfections, at least instills morality. On every side, there is conclusive evidence that the contrary is the case and that faith causes people to be more mean, more selfish, and perhaps above all, more stupid. Okay, Conclusive evidence that faith, Christianity, creates meaner, harder people. There are mean, 
hard people who claim to be Christians. But this is clearly not all the evidence. And I will think a skeptic when they get honest with themselves, an atheist when he's honest with himself, realizes they're not objective. A uh, atheistic professor from uh, NYU, Thomas Nagel, in his uh, 1997 book, admitted, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and most informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in Jesus and naturally hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. While I try to be objective, I have all sorts of personal reasons for why I don't want there to be a God. I want to be able to make my own decisions. I don't want to submit. And... uh Much earlier in the 20th century, renowned philosopher Aldous Huxley said this, No philosophy is completely disinterested. The pure love of truth is always mingled to some extent with the need, consciously or unconsciously, felt by even the noblest and most intelligent philosophers to justify a given form of personal or social behavior to rationalize the traditional prejudices of a given class or community. Ah, some are willing to admit, I spin because this is what I want to believe. Have you ever felt that way as a Christian? Have you ever heard pastors or me seem to spin or give part of the evidence that supports my position? but not the other. Do you ever feel when you read the Bible that you're, you're having to spin a passage for God? When I, and I, I, I do this. I feel this sometimes. When, when I look at uh, the divine commands of God to, to go into the land of Israel and take Jericho and Ai, and I say, and, and I give a defense of God. And I feel, am I spinning? Is that really true or or am I really spinning that? Or when I look at scripture on predestination and and human choice and somebody asks me a question and so I put it together with kind of a fancy answer and I hope I sell them with that answer. But I wonder, is this really the way it is or is this, this the way I want it to be? Or when some passages in the gospel seem to to have conflicting stories, two demoniacs, one demoniac, or uh, when when were the denials made? And and I come up with another answer, but I say, am I lying to myself? You know, we have to be honest as Christians. Uh, If we finally have some skeptics that are honest enough to say, I do spin because I, I believe this first and I spin the evidence, then perhaps that's what I do too. And so we are left with the question, who is right? Yes, we we all spin, but who is right to spin? Is it the atheist? Is it the Christian? Is it somebody from another religion? Or should we all say like the agnostics, we can't know, so we'll just ignore it altogether. Jesus answers that question today.
Our Father, I pray that we would have ears to hear. Jesus said that over and over again. And I think exactly what he was meaning when he said that was, do you have an open heart to the truth? And, and Lord, it's hard to... So we all have prejudices one way or another. We all want it to be a certain way. And I know even we as a congregation often look at some passages and we want them to be saying something. God, God today we want you to speak just as you spoke through Jesus 2,000 years ago to the skeptics. Amen. I mean, if, if you want the clearest picture of, of spin, look at the political parties in the United States. A Democrat, a politician, a senator, a congressman, a president, anything a Republican says, they spin and make it sound the way they want it to sound, as though this is coming from evil motives. And, of course, the Republicans don't do that back, though, right? (laughs) The Republicans take whatever a Democrat says, a president says, and they take the pieces they want to say, and they turn it, and they twist it, and they spin it, because both groups say, it has to be the way I want it to be, because this is what I believe And so I want everybody else to believe because this is what gives me power. This is what gets me reelected. They, we all, I think, lie to ourselves and say, I'm trying to be objective. And no, we're not. We're trying to win the battle. We're trying to win the argument. And Jesus confronts the chief skeptics of all, the greatest spin doctors of them all in the passage we have before us. The religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, trying to appear very open-minded as though they are very objective. Jesus, we really want to, we really want to know whether you're the son of God or not. So he says in verse 38, some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said, teacher, um, we want to see a sign from you. You You've been saying you're the son of God. So You know, of course we would believe if you would just show us a sign. Now, if you've been reading the chapter, you'll see that Jesus has had the biggest signs in front of them all along. They knew even before this chapter began that Jesus had been doing miracles. They saw them. They heard reports. The crowds were following them because... Jesus, because of the miracles. And in the first story in this chapter, the, the, the religious leader set up on the Sabbath to watch to see what? To see if Jesus will do a miracle on the Sabbath. And Jesus does. He heals the man with the crippled hand. And their response isn't, oh, another sign, this must be the Son of God. Their response is, we want to kill Jesus now. Because he's desecrating the Sabbath. They'd already made up their sign. They had already made up their mind. Even though Jesus gave them the sign, it turned them not to receive, but to want to silence him. In the middle of this chapter, the whole debate about is Jesus is clearly casting out demons. And the Pharisees don't say, you know, the casting out of demons is a sign, right, that Jesus is the Son of God. And the Pharisees, religious leaders, they don't say, uh, 
no, you're not really casting out demons. This is just a fake. You've, you've set this all up. It's a charade. People, it's a charade what Jesus is doing. No, they recognize the power of Jesus Christ. And they say, yeah, there's a supernatural power at work in you, and it's the power of the devil. You're the devil in disguise. Oh, the, the evidence was clearly before them. They saw it. They knew it. And what did they say? If you just gave us a sign, we would believe you. What will it take? And it's the same thing with many skeptics today. What will it take? And Jesus said, this is an evil and adulterous wicked and adulterous generation that asks for a sign. None will be given it. And he could have subtexted, because I've already given you half a hundred of them. But none will be given you except the sign of Jonah, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights. So the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. He's pointing to the resurrection. And for those of you who struggle with the three days and three nights, and then you count lazy Friday, late Friday, full day Saturday, part day Sunday morning, that's not three days and three nights. This is, this is a Hebrewism that we could show in other passages that you could speak of a part of a day as though it's a day and a night. And so he's really saying, on the third day, I will rise. The ultimate proof is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He, Jesus is saying here, is, is I'm not going to engage in subjective arguments or try to win a philosophical debate. It hinges not on our philosophy or our thinking. The reality of Christianity hinges on an historical event that I believe took place on April 3rd, A.D. 33. Now, scholars will debate about that. They don't debate about the resurrection. They debate about the date of the resurrection because it is so certain. And the questions that Bill Maher raised have been answered long, 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 long ago. He says a couple decades trying to refer to the gospel writers. They, they wrote a couple decades after the event took place. How many of you believe in the assassination of President Kennedy? We're going to be 50th, the 50th, and that is in the minds of a lot of us, right? We know exactly where we were. Uh, that evidence is out there. And you say, well, we had television and all the recordings there. When I, when I was in Connecticut, I met a person, I had a friend who worked with Lee Harvey Oswald's wife. I mean, there are connections that connect you back. Uh, all I would need is that connection and that understanding from there. And the fact that uh, there was a new president, what explains where Kennedy went? Uh, this explains where Kennedy went. And there's no other explanation. And so... There's tremendous evidence. The Gospels themselves are evidence. And Matthew is an eyewitness. John is an eyewitness. Gives incredible details. 
as to the number of fish that are caught. Uh, Luke tells you, I did historical research. I went out and talked to the eyewitnesses, eyewitness after eyewitness after eyewitness, and got this report. See, the historicity of Jesus, I believe, is a proven fact, not through a scientific means where you have to reproduce it. I can't reproduce the resurrection of Jesus today as Bill Maher seems to want. Uh, but through a historical search, the greatest Greek, excuse me, the, great, uh, the greatest Roman historian, Tacitus, and the greatest Greek historian, Josephus of the first century, both mention Christ. Yeah, there's a lot of historical evidence there. What happened to him? Jesus says, this is what will happen to me. And this is the proof. I will rise. Now, we can't go through, say, N.T. Wright's 800-page tome and all the evidence that that offers on the resurrection of the Son of God. I suggest that you read a few pages. Uh, but I want to just take a moment to look at some of the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because your faith falls or stands based on that. Uh, first, our culture today would say, well, when that was written down, there was a whole different world view. Uh, people in that day were much more... Uh, uh, they believed in stuff that we don't believe in. This. <laughs> Suspicious, that's the word, right? They're much more suspicious than us. Not su superstitious is the word. Okay, fine, my God. They're much more superstitious than us. We're scientific today. We have so much that's going on that we now know and understand they didn't understand. Essentially, we're saying we have a worldview today that doesn't include the idea that somebody could rise from the dead like Jesus did. Well, Antirite clearly proves throughout that that was not the worldview of Jesus' day either. And he looks at Roman, Greek, and Jewish culture. None of them believed in such a type of resurrection. Did you ever wonder why the disciples doubted Jesus' resurrection when they heard the story? I mean, Jesus told them a number of times, I'm going to die and rise from the dead. And then the women come and say, hey, he's gone, he's risen. And what's their response? No, let's go back and mourn in the, the upper room. And then oh, 10 of the disciples see Jesus. Thomas comes and they say, we saw Jesus with our own eyes. And Thomas goes, nah, I need to see it with my own eyes, right? Why did they doubt like that? Jesus told them because they didn't have the category in their minds. See, they believed what we modern people believe. Dead people stay dead. And they, the resurrection, they believed, happened at the end of time. No, no such thing as a, a glorious resurrection during time. So it didn't fit their, their brains. So they, it, there was no category in their brains. See, the worldview about resurrection was the same then and it is today. Yet, overnight, that worldview is transformed in the minds of thousands and thousands and thousands of people who live within the shadow of the tomb of Jesus Christ. You know, 
it takes generations for cultural worldviews to change. Look at civil rights. I mean, we had a war 150, 60 years ago that freed the slaves. I'm reading Jackie Robinson's biography in the 40s. He's the first African-American baseball player in the major leagues. Then in the 50s, you have the fights over the civil rights. And finally, in the 60s, the, the culture worldview begins to change and say, you know what? we got to get rid of the Jim Crow laws. we got to treat everybody equal. It takes a long time for a worldview to change, yet their worldview changed instantaneously. All of a sudden, people are now preaching a resurrection, something that nobody could conceive of. And they started believing it, even though it was unimaginable to them, like it was to Thomas. If it was unimaginable to the closest disciples of Jesus, imagine how unimaginable it was to all those who heard Peter's sermon in Jerusalem. And yet, they believed because it was in the shadow of the empty tomb. And not only was now a worldview changed, but the evidence began to be lived out in the lives of Christians. Rodney Stark, a well-known sociologist, wrote a book on the rise of Christianity. And he studied it, studied everything to say what was happening in the rise of Christianity. And he cites three things. He said, first, the, these, about the distinction between Christians and all of us, how they were so different than everyone else. When the plagues hit the big cities, I mean, there wasn't medicine to cure it. You got it, you died. And so the people would flee those who, who got the diseases. They'd leave the cities, except the Christians stayed there. And they ministered to the sick, even though it could cost them their lives. Because they didn't fear death for some reason. Uh, because of Pax Romana and how Rome had taken over so much of the world and now... He, they created cities all under Roman power. Uh, different ethnic groups, different races began to come together in the cities and there was incredible tension. But the first organization in history that entered into the lives of the multicultural from all around and brought them together as one was the church. Somehow these people were changed to do what others wouldn't do. And the third is when the Christians were persecuted and executed for their faith. They didn't create a holy war. They didn't become guerrillas to fight it. They went to their deaths praying for their persecutors. What you see is not simply a talk about the history of a resurrection. You see the fruit of it, the dramatic fruit of it. You know, uh, I went to the grocery store and I saw, I think it's the Asian pears. You know, and, and you see, I saw an Asian pear and I go, oh, I hadn't really seen that before. And I go, is that an apple? Or is that a, kind of the shape of an apple, right? Am I right on that, on the Asian pears? 
and, and yet it has the color of a Bosque pear. And I'm like, is that an apple or what, what kind of tree? Do you think that came from an apple tree or a Bosque pear tree? And the answer is, no, 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 no. There's another kind of tree it comes from. It's called an Asian pear tree. That's the fruit of it. And Rodney Stark looks and he sees this incredible new fruit that just appears after the time of Jesus' resurrection. And we'd ask, did that come from the the Jewish people or the Roman uh, polytheists? And the answer is, no, no, it comes from a whole new tree, the tree of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Bill Maher said, there's no eyewitnesses. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says, I received, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me abnormally born, which means later. I didn't see him, Jesus, while he was alive. Now, Modern scholarship traces this statement, this belief, because they, they believe that Paul didn't make this up. He's citing a creed. They trace this creed back to within the first year after Jesus died and was resurrected. So it isn't two generations later. This is something that is right there after the resurrection of Jesus. And the thing is, he names names. If I'm going to make up an event, I'm not going to tell you a name of somebody that might be able to check it out. So, for instance, I say, you know, uh, when I was playing basketball in high school, I, I scored 50 points in one game. I'd leave it at that. Right? That's what I'd leave it. I wouldn't say, I scored 50 points. You know, Coach Daniels, he was my coach was there. He saw that, and the captain of you know the other players were Marty Tuccio's uh, and Steve Burton. And you know, uh, would I do that? No, I'm not going to tell you the, the teammates. I'm just going to I'm gonna, just going to tell you what happened. But he tells you the teammates here. He goes through name after name after name. And, and another thing about this is, when I read the Gospels, who are the first people to see the resurrected Jesus. And Mary and the women. And, and I read 1 Corinthians and say, where, where did Mary and the women go? You know, uh, a lot of people today like to say, you know, they created this story. Now, if you're going to create a story, say, you know, Pastor Brandon and I are going to create a story. We're going to try to line it up, right? So if I've got the women doing the, being the first to see the resurrection, Certainly, if you're going to write a creed about it, Brandon, please put women first. We want to be lined up. Why not? Because, first of all, you know, Paul is trying to get across. Here, here's proof of the resurrection. He was buried. He died and buried. Buried was proof he died. Seen by others as proof he rose. Now, in that day, the testimony of a woman was null and void in a law court. 
He wouldn't listen to it. So Paul trying to prove, give evidence, he's not going to include them. So why do the gospel writers include the women? Because that's what happened. They're telling you the story. Luke says, I'm going to write you a history. I did all the historical research. I'm going to write you a history about what actually happened. That's what happened. And then you might say, well, so, so you have these names. Well, first of all, you say, they're alive. Most of them are alive that saw. Saw the resurrection. And, and you get named. And I say, well, of course, you get, I mean, I give Marty DiTuccio, right? And you're like, you know, who's he? I can't check him out, you know. I mean, give me the name of somebody famous, you know. Tell me Coach Calhoun saw it, you know. I go to him, right? You know, so, I mean, he's giving names. What, what good is that to, right? Well, you give Peter and James. Oh, here's his disciples. What good is that, you know. Let's give, give, give me a Jew or something. And, uh, you know, so, so John tells us, uh, he says, uh, in his gospel, he said, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Okay, stop there. You might say, well, Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus, who are they? They're both members of the Sanhedrin. You know, the Sanhedrin is like mixing the Senate with the Supreme Court. You may not know all of the Supreme Court members' names, but somebody does. These were not innocuous people, the Marty DiTuccio, that you can't check out. These are the Josephs and the Nicodemus, famous, well-known people. And by the way, Pilate's pretty well-known too. So, first-hand evidence. N.T. Wright concludes... Ultimately, the reason I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or this multitude of evidence, is that there is no credible explanation for the rise of Christianity apart from the resurrection of Jesus. Nobody has ever come up with any explanation that had any credibility that could explain the dramatic nuclear explosion that happened in A.D. 33, that still resounds to today. There's only one explanation. Jesus is risen. So I would ask you, if you're a skeptic, examine the evidence. Open up your heart enough to examine the evidence. It's not about your philosophy or what you want to believe. It's about a fact in history. Jesus rose or not rose. Right. Christian, I want to say to you, have you sometimes in the scripture like wonder if you're spinning something to make it fit together? Maybe you're not putting it together right, but I will tell you this. It does come together. It all comes together. And when the big picture is complete, the, comp- the picture of life is complete, and we're going to look at scripture and the things that, that we struggled with and we're going to go, that's Okay. I got that right, didn't quite get that one right, but yes, they all fit together and support the faith of, that Jesus Christ gave us. 
Have that confidence because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And so Jesus then says, to our dismay, there is judgment coming upon you for not believing me. See, he doesn't say, you know, hey, you you got it wrong, you didn't believe in me, well, everybody's getting in. He says, the judgment falling, and the judgment day, he says, the men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba are going to stand up and say, you guys had all that evidence and you didn't believe? I mean, the, Nineveh was hardened, hardened men. They were known for the atrocities they committed as they, they conquered people. And God tells Jonah, go and preach. doesn't say, go, go and do all these miracles to convince them. He says, go and preach. Judgment's coming on you from Yahweh. And Jonah says, I'm going the other way. Now, he doesn't say that because, boy, if I preach this, they're going to they're gonna kill me. We see at the end of the story, he's saying, I went that way because these people are such bad dudes. I don't want them converted. I don't want God to forgive them. That's how bad the men of Nineveh were. And the evidence they had was one man saying, you're under the judgment of Yahweh. And yet something happened to them. And they're going to stand up to the Pharisees, the religious leaders who saw miracle after miracle after miracle. They're going to stand up before God in our judgment, the judgment of our generation that said you had proof after proof after proof. You had the testimony in the word of God. You had the testimony in the historical record. You had the testimony in the lives of many Christians. They're going to stand up to the men of Nineveh and say, we believed with a proclamation. Little evidence. You had something greater than Jonah. You had something greater than Solomon. You had incredible evidence, sign after sign, and the ultimate sign, and you didn't believe. As Christians, what does that do to your heart? Paul says it about the religious leaders. He says in Romans chapter 10, He says, I testify about them that they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What he's saying here is, he's saying is, the the people who believe differently than I believe, they're sincere. I mean, we all spin, but they're sincere in wanting especially these religious leaders, they were zealous for God. They really wanted God, but they missed it because they thought, I can get to God by what I do, by my personal righteousness. They missed the fact that we only get to God through what Christ has done for us. And so when they missed Christ, they missed what the cross brings them. And in the previous chapter, Paul tells us what that did to his heart. Essentially, he's saying, Paul's saying, I'm right. They're sincere, I'm sincere, but I'm right. And this is what it does. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my people, those of my own race. 
Paul says, I'm right. They're wrong. They crucified my Savior. But I would trade my salvation if they could be saved. Christian, you are right in your faith. And those who do not accept Christianity are wrong. And they are under the judgment of God. Where does that leave us? Arrogant and boastful? Does it leave us with broken hearts? Saying, if they could be saved, I'd trade my salvation for it. The next two stories seem out of line. I'm going to go through them briefly just to show how they, how they connect. Because it moves to a story about demons. And it seems like it says if there's a house clean, you know, uh, the spirit is an unclean spirit. And, and he leaves and goes through arid places. But, but he finds the house empty. He's going to come back with, with other demons. And the latter state's going to be worse than the first. And I think there's a lot of interpretations. But I think he's probably saying here, Jewish leaders... You think you're clean in the house. You teach moral righteousness. You, you've swept it clean. But you haven't filled it. And one day, your situation is going to be so much worse than your, head, than your forefathers had. Because you missed the time of resurrection. Because you missed me. You see, the, the Christian life we need to know is not about moral reform. It's not about simply coming in and saying, God has all these commands, I'll sweep the house clean. He's saying that that does nothing except open the opportunity for more evil to eventually come in because you can't keep it up forever. He's saying it's got to be filled and ultimately we know it's got to be filled with the Spirit of God. The Christian life is a faith in Christ that brings a fullness of God's love and glory that comes our way, that the Spirit ministers to our hearts that fill us up so that when sin tries to get in and saying, here's where you can find love, and they're pointing in all the wrong places, and here's where you can find that you are valued and treasured, here's where you can find your significance in life, and we, we try to please that, here's where you're going to find real joy and fulfillment if we're already full they won't speak into our lives. That's gospel-centered living. And I think it speaks also to the religious people. Remember, the skeptics in this passage were religious people. In fact, they worshipped Yahweh, the same God that Jesus worshipped. They worshipped Yahweh. They didn't worship another God by some other name with other attributes. And yet Jesus says, you are condemned. Because you missed me. And so, I hope it's very clear what Jesus says. Not the way I would have made religion, but it's the way Jesus says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Religious leaders, you're very sincere, but what you miss is you think you can get to God, you can get to heaven by what you do. It's impossible. It's by what Christ has done for you. That's the only way. And then when you receive that, you are, your heart gets filled. You're, you're not an empty place to come back for evil to enter into. And then the, the last story, I'll go through quickly too, is Jesus, while he's speaking, 
people come in and say, your, 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 your mother and your brothers are outside. They want to speak to you. Interrupt, you know, these people and come outside. And, and Jesus says, here's my mother and my brothers and my sisters. And Jesus is saying there are, there are two families in life. There's the physical family and God's very clear honor, your father and mother. Supreme, very important, very central to our lives. But he says there's a family that is more important. And it is the spiritual family. You're, these are my brothers and sisters. There is a spiritual connection. And, and I think the application for the line of, of this sermon is twofold. Don't think you can get to God based on the faith of your parents. I served in a church that uh, primarily was from... Uh, uh, came from a nation that was the first Christian nation, the first, you know, where the king said, you're all becoming Christians. And I would speak to, not those in my church, they had a faith in Christ, but those in in the churches around, and they would say, yeah, I'm a Christian because I'm I'm of this country. We're we're the first Christian nation, therefore I'm a Christian. And, And Jesus would say, no. The physical family doesn't determine your spiritual family. And I think a second application is, is your connection to your physical family keeping you from personal faith in Jesus Christ and joining the spiritual family? You know, I've had conversations with people where the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ that Paul gave earlier, Christ died for our sins. And rose from the dead, and it's resonating, but I could see it ticking. And say, well, my grandmother was a really religious person, but wasn't a Christian. Or my parents, I, I love them so much, and they weren't Christians. But if I say, if I accept Jesus, I'm saying he's the only way, and, and I'm saying they aren't included. I can't believe that. I can't believe they're not included in their connection to our physical family. This is the point. All are welcome to the spiritual family. We all have to make that personal decision. We can't let our physical families, in any way we feel, as much love as we feel about them, to keep us from that. Jesus said some very confronting, strong, and harsh words. This passage, he said... You wicked and adulterous generation. He said to them, the men of Nineveh are going to stand at your judgment and condemn you. He said, if you don't fill your house, more demons are coming back in on you. And he said to the sons of Abraham who believed they were children by birth, he said, you are not children of God. Very harsh things. Does Jesus have a harsh heart? No. Jesus said these because he loved them. Because he was warning them of the coming judgment. He loved them so much he would take them and shake them and say, Don't you get it? I want you to get it. No. 
These same people were at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and they mocked him. And this does remind us of something we just looked at in this passage. Jesus said, you can blaspheme me, but you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Those are incredible words, aren't they? Tell me what happens when you people blaspheme a religious leader today. The response is often violent. Jesus himself said, you can blaspheme me. You can drag my name through the mud if you want. But you can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. The reason is, it is the Holy Spirit that tells us Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. If you don't accept that ministry of the Holy Spirit, you will never receive Jesus. What was the difference between the sons of Nineveh who simply had somebody saying, you're judged, or the queen of Sheba who simply looked at at a land far away and said, wow, that Solomon has wisdom. He's got the true God. Why did they believe when the religious leaders who had it in front of their eyes didn't? The Spirit of God knocks on the door of our hearts and those religious leaders were close to and eventually did say, the Spirit, that is not the Spirit of God that's pointing to Jesus. It's the Spirit of the devil. They will never receive Christ. Jesus said, you can blaspheme my name. And they did at the foot of the cross. They called him all sorts of names. They spit at him. They mocked him and said, ha ha, if you're the son of God, come down on the cross. Come down from the cross and prove it who you are, and then we'll believe. Sure. And Jesus looked down at them as they blasphemed him and said, Father, forgive them. If Jesus was harsh in his words, it was out of a love that was crying out that they would receive that forgiveness that he prayed for for them. That's the Jesus that we have. It's the Jesus that's being rejected. It's the Jesus we need to show, the Jesus we need to proclaim. Our Father, we thank you for not basing our beliefs on philosophies or arguments, but on something truly solid. I pray your spirit would take that to every heart here and minister it more deeply to the hearts of believers and minister it in a new, fresh way to those who don't yet know you. So they too might join us one day and bow down before you and worship you and call you the Son of God, the Lord of Lords, the King of the Earth. Amen.